my generation, we've only got one thing on our minds. Solving mysteries and building traps. That's two things, Fred. Welcome to another episode of the Unmasked History of Scooby-Doo, the podcast where we delve into the mystery of Scooby-Doo media, getting clues from people who helped bring our favorite mystery-solving dog to life on various platforms, and maybe eating some Scooby snacks along the way. I'm your host, Alexa Lawler. We're just solving mysteries. All the kids are doing it. No, they're not. What have you kids done now? You can call me Mr. D. Welcome to the very first episode in September. This month, we're doing something a little bit different in that each interview corresponds to a theme, which will be Mystery Incorporated. To kick off the month, we have Mitch Watson, who is the producer and head writer for the show. And just for a bit of background context on this one, uh, we did the interview just a few days after supervising producer Tony Cervoni confirmed that Velma was a lesbian in the show. Uh, So that sets up a bit of the conversation. Additionally, this is one of the longest episodes yet on the podcast, so I highly recommend curling up to relax while listening to this interview. I also somehow didn't end up doing an intro to this one, so we're kicking off right into the trivia. I typically like to start off with a quick three-question trivia game. Okay, go for it. Question one, what are the names of the two people on the soccer team who are often seen being quite hostile towards Fred and Mystery Incorporated? Oh, that's, uh, oh, god damn it. It's, I, I know who those are because I was one of those guys. Um, oh, Jesus, it's been too long. It's been, uh. I can't remember, but I know exactly who you're talking about. Um, they fall off the mountain at one point. Yeah. I can't remember their names. This is terrible. I can't remember their <laughs> names. But I know I know who you're talking because, you know, those are voiced by myself and Tony Cervoni. And that is why I picked that question. <laughs> yes. Yeah. But I cannot. I'm trying to remember their names and I can't. I can't remember their names. I'm sorry. Ethan and Gary. Ethan and Gary, right. Ethan and Gary, shit. I can't even remember which one I played. Those characters were also designed slightly to look like Tony and I. So, uh, anyways, thank you. Ethan and Gary, I shall never forget those names again. Now, the next two are maybe a little bit more obscure. Um, Oh, God, like that, that one wasn't obscure. No, not at all. Hopefully they're not too hard. But question two, in The Secret of the Ghost Rig, what was the fake name that Rung Latterton used to buy tires for the ghost truck? Oh, Jesus Christ. I don't know that. I barely, I, I have no idea. I don't, I don't remember that at all. What was it? Gene Nerno Treadle. Oh, Je- <laughs> <laughs> I never would have remembered that in a million years. Uh, <laughs> excellent. You've stumped me twice. 
So whatever it was I was going to win, I'm definitely not going to win it. All right, what was number three? Uh, number three is probably the hardest one. Oh, good. <laughs> Great. In The Grasp of the Gnome, what is the name of the self-help book that Velma's mom gives her after the gnome attacks? Oh, God, I don't know. <laughs> you do know it was like 10 years ago that I did this show, and I have no, I, no idea. 100% no, no clue. What was it? It's called I'm Okay, You're a Scary Gnome. Yeah, that sounds like something we would have written. Yeah, uh, oh, great. So zero for zero. Uh, or zero for three, I should say. Um, yeah, well done. Those are truly obscure ones. And you also chose particular episodes of which are never the episodes that anybody ever wants to talk about either. Like the truck one, which I think is the second episode that we, second or third episode we did. And, uh, and that gnome episode, which was written by uh, John McCann, who gave me my first job. Um, yeah, no one ever brings those episodes up. <laughs> By the way, just a little bit of trivia. That whole gnome episode came about because Tony Cervoni, uh, who was my partner on the whole thing, uh, he, he was so upset that he kept going to the Renaissance Fair and everybody was dressed like a pirate. And he was really angry about that because that was a totally different century. To, and uh, he thought it was just wrong that people were dressing up as pirates. <laughs> So that was why we, there's a whole bunch of jokes about that in that episode, but that was the entire reason that we actually did that episode was that uh, Tony was irate that there were so many pirates showing up at the Renaissance Fair. <laughs> I had no idea that Anyways. was based on a real problem. It was, believe it or not. Yeah, many of those episodes are all based on, on real problems that Tony and I were having at the time. No, <laughs> that one though in particular was because Tony was, yeah, he, he was really... He just came back one time. I think he came back from the Renaissance Fair and he was just livid that there were so many pirates walking around. And he's just kind of like, they're not pirates, okay? Pirates didn't exist back then, blah, blah, blah. So we decided to make... And I had an obsession at the time with... There was a video floating around the internet of a gnome, I think in Mexico, or this dwarf in Mexico, something. It was something in Mexico that kept showing up and terrifying children. And you can still find the videos of it. And that's why it walks in the show. It walks with like a sideways gait. Uh, there is this thing in Mexico, at least back then, that people kept videotaping a tiny person with a big cone hat, like shuffling in the distance. It was really weird. <laughs> Anyways, yeah, that's how Mystery Incorporated stories were born from my weird obsessions and uh, Tony's anger at something. All right, now that I failed your test, now that I've magnificently failed your trivia test, what else would you like to, to talk about? Um, to start off the general questions, what's your relationship to Scooby-Doo? Did you grow up watching? Uh, yeah, I mean, it was, the originals were on, I probably watched, because they were on before I was born, so I, I probably watched um, reruns. Uh, I, I mean, I remember the the original pretty well, and I remember a few iterations of it here and there, but I can't, I can't, definitely cannot say that I was like some massive Scooby-Doo fan before I started working on the show, or which is why I ended up working on the show. In fact, I think they probably chose, I, you know, I think I probably uh, was asked to do it, or one of the reasons they approached me to do it 
was because I really wasn't like, like some super fan, you know, so I could take it, look at it from a different angle and maybe come up with something that they hadn't thought of before. Um, yeah, I wasn't, it was, I was definitely not one of these people that's like, oh my God, everything is canon and you can't do this because they would never do that and blah, blah, blah. Um, and, and in fact, once the show was done and it aired, I got a, there were many people who were diehard Scooby-Doo fans who did not like the show because they felt that it had, it did things that, you know, that went against canon and blah, blah, blah. So whatever. That was, uh, my, my feeling about that was there were so many iterations of Scooby-Doo at that point that there really was no canon. Um, I mean, I guess you could go back to the original and say that that was canon and, or whatnot, but the problem I have with saying something is canon is you sort of box yourself in and, and, and you stop yourself from actually exploring new ways of taking the, taking the show or the subject matter because you're so hamstrung by rules and stuff that, that don't even really exist, by the way, that have just sort of been created um, out in the ether. So uh, I think that is, so I think when you take over a franchise like Scooby, uh, it helps to have reverence, but not be so reverent that it keeps you from exploring and trying to do something new with it. Definitely. And what was it like to come on to a show where the franchise does have those like loyalist fans that are, you know, kind of obsessed with what is and isn't canon? You know, it was my first experience with that. Um, and then I did right after Scooby, I did, uh, I did a, a, my version of Batman. Um, and I experienced it more on that show than I did on Scooby. On Scooby, you know, we got a lot of, it was really funny. The most pushback we got, I think, in the entire series from the fans on Scooby was all about Velma. It was about how we were portraying Velma. And we were doing, we had a very specific, to me, and I, and I would always respond if anybody interviewed me, I would always go like, you don't quite see the whole picture of what we're doing with Velma. But when you see the whole picture, I think you're going to appreciate what we were doing. And some maybe they did and maybe they didn't because I never followed up with it. But that was we got a ton of feedback on Velma for the way that she was acting towards Shaggy and the fact that we were actually showing them having a relationship and and blah blah blah. blah. And then people were saying, "Oh, I don't like the way Velma was acting towards Shaggy." And da 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 da. And um, and we just held our tongues because we knew what we were doing and we knew it was going to pay off somewhere down the line in the second season. But we weren't allowed to talk about it, really, you know, because, uh, you know, we were we were setting up Velma to be a character who was sort of kind of figuring out her own sexuality and and coming to grips with the fact that, you know, that she's gay. And um, and part of that was to show, you know, her reactions to Shaggy and how he wasn't giving her what she felt she needed. And then ultimately she realizes that it has it's not so much to be about Shaggy. It's more about her. I mean, she was looking in the wrong place. And then, so then we have that, there's a mermaid episode and then we start, that's where she's really gets the first inkling that, Oh, wait a minute. Maybe, you know, maybe guys are not what I'm looking for. And then, and then we introduced hot dog water. And, uh, and then by the end of the series, we were hoping that it would be pretty clear that if the show goes on or whatever happens in their lives, that, Hot Dog Water and Velma uh, are together. You know, I found each other. And then, so Velma is finally content with who she is. 
And so we knew that going all the way through, but we sort of had to endure all the, um, the attacks because we weren't allowed to talk about it. It was, it was not something they, there was no way at that time, because this was like, like I said, 10 years ago or so, they were, they were not going to portray Velma as gay, period. So, you know, we had to figure out a different way to do it. And that was how we did it. And some people got it and some people didn't. So anyways, um, that sort of answers that part of the question. And that was the most pushback we got. Everybody fucking flipped out about Scooby. First off, with, with Shaggy and Velma making out in with the first episode, I think. I remember even even the executives, because um, the show was originally done for uh, British or European Cartoon Network, not the United States. And I remember they wigged out. They were like, what are you, what the, ah, ah, they just flipped out that we were doing this. And we're like, no, 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 it's going to be fine. And then what happened was the executive that we were dealing with in England um, got, he either quit or got fired. We never quite found out what happened. All we knew was that we just suddenly, we didn't have an executive on the show anymore. And um, for those of you unfamiliar with how shows work, Every show has at least one or two executives on it. And they're the ones who represent the studio and so they make sure that you're maintaining, you know, the brand or whatnot. And they give you notes and da-da-da-da-da. Well, without an executive on a show, we could pretty much do whatever we wanted. You know, there wasn't, it was, there was no teacher watching over us. So because that guy I th- lost his job, I think by in this, right around the second episode, we were without an executive for a good 10, 12 episodes. Uh, and so we were able to get a lot of stuff in that we normally would not have been able to get in. And then, then an executive came on the show and stopped, and stopped a bunch of that. So, uh, I remember one of the, the biggest thing I think that happened when the executive came on back on the show was the reintroduction of Scooby snacks in the show, because I had, I'd banned them. I said, I don't want to do it. I don't want this to become a show about a dog eating a bunch of biscuits. I, uh, I, I said, let's. This, you know, well, it'll show up periodically, but I don't want to make this like the whole fucking Scooby snack show because a lot of the old, the other iterations of the show had been obsessive about Scooby snacks, Scooby snacks, Scooby snacks, you know, and they were like, okay, great. But they've done that. Let's, let's, let's dial that back a little bit. And then when the executive came in, he dialed it right back up again. So we battled back and forth of these very, very important life questions of how much Scooby snacks to show in an, in an episode. But um, anyways, there's that. That's my long-winded answer to whatever it was the question was that I have now completely forgotten. <laughs> and uh, coming <laughs> coming back to talking about what you could or couldn't do with Velma, uh, it's been circling around yeah. on social media lately that uh, Tony had actually confirmed that, um, you know, Velma was a lesbian. And there's there's still so many people that are like, what? That wasn't obvious. Yeah, I know. But what's your reaction to that? Well, to me, it's obvious if you actually, I mean, I guess it's obvious if you're looking for it. To us, it was very obvious, especially after the mermaid episode. And then also the final shots of Velma and hot dog water on the bed together at the end. I mean, to us, it was like crystal clear. My response is like, come on, really? I mean, I think now if you did it, it, it would almost be like, of course, you know, and, and expected and encouraged, da, da, da. But 10 years ago, you just, you can't, you, even then you couldn't do that kind of thing. So, you know, a lot of what we did on Mystery Incorporated 
was uh, go we we would just go through the blogs and the Reddit posts and anything else to see what fans were saying, you know. And so a lot of there were things that ended up in the show that were based on uh, theories that fans had, and um, which was a lot of fun for us. So we were very well aware of what was going on um, in terms of how people felt about Velma being gay or not gay or da da da. da. We just sort of ignored it. I mean, we just kind of ignored it. I think we got a big chuckle out of it because we knew what we were doing and we were doing it from the very, very start. And once we started doing it, there was no going back and we were pretty happy with the decisions we'd made. So it was, it was alternately like annoying that no one was sort of getting it, but also very, very fun to see how angry people would get with each other. And I think that's why Tony finally said, look, I'm tired. You know, it's been 10 years. God damn it. She's not bi. Okay. She's gay. All right. And so he was, he, he just wanted to make a very stringent, he wanted to make that point. And then he immediately texted me after he did it. Uh, and he said, dude, just so you know, uh, Velma is gay is trending on Twitter. I'm like, what? <laughs> <laughs> oh, who let that cat out of the bag? And he's like, well, I posted this thing. I'm like, all right, cool. Finally. Uh, I was wondering when that would finally come out. But um, anyway, so I think what was your question? Your question was the fan reaction to all of that. How, yeah. uh, what was my response to it? Yeah. You know, I, I, I had been at that point, uh, it wasn't, you know, not my first, first rodeo. So I was familiar with, you know, fan feedback and I had sort of built up a bit of a thick skin to it uh, because of, you know, the, the thing about the internet and the, and the interesting thing about writing, um, uh, writing, especially, you know, animation and the fact that responses are immediate and you're not, they're not showing up in a letter in your mailbox. There's just, they're literally showing up seconds after the show. Cause I used to watch the show while watching some other, there was, they used to live blog, uh, people would live blog while watching the show. And so I was watching criticisms in real time and I, I got a big kick out of it, but um, you know, it never bugged me really. I, I enjoyed it. I always enjoyed it. In fact, the more hostile, the better. I, I, I got to a point where I really, really started to like all the anger, <laughs> you know, uh, I found it very entertaining um, because I thoroughly believe that, you know, if you're going to do anything that, you know, even remotely will be remembered in any way, it has to offend somebody. Uh, if you do something that's completely, you know, uh, that everybody across the board just loves it and thinks it's wonderful and uh, there's no comfortable, that means, you know, yes, you've probably created something entertaining, but you didn't create something that sort of pushed the boundaries of whatever you were doing. And until you do that, um, you know, people are just going to be like, yeah, it's great. And then move on. But if you can push them, push their buttons in some way, uh, then they remember you. So I, I always feel that if you're going to do something, you, you need to get both. You should have both negative and positive reactions. And that means, all right, great. You did something that caused people to have a particular feeling about it, which means you must have done something right. So, I mean, Mystery Incorporated was a very interesting show for Tony and I, because, you know, while we, while we were doing it, um, we had no idea how it was going to be received. And we got a lot of mixed messages from the studio. Um, you know, Warner Brothers was totally behind it. But uh, Cartoon Network never liked the series. <laughs> they didn't like it at all. And if you, um, you know, in the second, and they kept pulling it off the schedule. And 
putting it in different places and it became very hard for people to find. And it wasn't until it showed up in its entirety on um, Netflix that people really started to get behind it. And Tony and I would t say it all the time. We were like, yeah, maybe nobody's going to appreciate it now, but five years from now, five years from now, people will appreciate it. And then it actually happened a little quicker than that. But we were, uh, you know, so there was a certain point of working on the show where we were kind of like, all right, we're not going to get it. We're not getting any support for from Cartoon Network. They're not going to promote the show. Um, we've just got to accept the fact that for right now, people just aren't going to ever get to see it, really see it. So, but that's not going to stop us from doing what we wanted to do, um, you know, with the hopes that somewhere down the line, somebody would finally discover the show and, and watch it and pay attention. But it was always a bit, a bit of a bummer that Cartoon Network just never, never really got behind it. And always, they always, they thought it was too dark and they thought it was too weird. And apparent, and the other, and uh, this, by the way, this is all stuff I heard secondhand. Um, and I was also told that they, the one other rumor that I heard was that it premiered at around the same time as Adventure Time. And the ratings, this I do know was true. Uh, the ratings for, for Mystery Incorporated were better than the ratings for Adventure Time in the beginning. And then they pulled us off the schedule because, and this is, I don't want to get in the weeds on this. There was a, there's always been a rivalry or there was a rivalry between Cartoon Network and WB even though they're owned by the same company, they, they function completely separately. And there was a, there was a rival, you know, there was like Cartoon Network wanted to prove that they were the better studio, I think. And Warner Brothers wanted to show that they were the better studios. And so the trouble was that all of Warner Brothers stuff ultimately ended up on Cartoon Network. And we were at the whim of Cartoon Network's programming people. So if they wanted to tank a show, they could tank it. And they, they, they pretty much did, in my opinion. They, uh, not only in the United States, though. It became a major success for, I think, two years running all over the world. And then there was a big backlash uh, where they asked, they wanted to know why it was successful everywhere else in the world, but not in the United States. And somebody finally said, well, they pointed out the fact that it had been pulled off the schedule 13 times uh, and moved to different spots. And then nobody was told about it. Cartoon Network also used to do trailers for the show uh, that had um, that literally would reveal who the villain was in the episode. They would cut trailers together, and at the end of the trailer, they would do the unmasking. We're like, "What are you doing? What you're literally you're just you're, you you are actually just giving away the ending of the show." We that that was at the point we were kind of like, "Are they are they sabotaging the show?" So I don't know if they were or not. Ultimately, I'm sure they would say they weren't, but it's hard to understand why they would do that and pull the show off the air 13 different times uh, during the course of its run and um, with no real explanation why they were doing that. But uh, ultimately it was, I think finally, finally they came down to, I think finally everybody came around to the fact that, yeah, there was somebody at the top of that just didn't like the show and they were, they were doing whatever they could to make sure that it didn't succeed. And then it succeeded anyways. So uh, that was very satisfying. But fortunately, like I said, Scooby ended up on Netflix. And when it ended up on Netflix is when it exploded. Uh, because everybody could watch the show in continuity. Uh, that was the other thing they used to do. They used to put shows on in the wrong order. And it was just really a nightmare. And, and there was nothing we could do about it. Because they were the platform we were on at the time. But uh, it was, that was what was great when it came out on Netflix.
because then everybody could finally see the show as it was intended to be seen. And um, and the rest is history. There you are. And what was it like to work on a Scooby show that really pushes the boundaries with having an overarching story and, you know, explorations of sexuality and things like that? Oh, it was great. You know, that was our, that was our intention. When, when, um, when I was first approached to work on the show by Sam Register, you know, he, he asked me to do it. And at first I was reticent because I was kind of like, you know, that show's been around for, around for a long time. And I don't know that there's any, you know, I, I really wasn't interested in just sort of doing another reboot version of the original series. That wasn't, I said, they, they did it in the original series. Everybody loves the original series. The original series is iconic and I don't want to just rehash it. But Sam was pretty open to, you know, us exploring new ways of doing it. So, you know, I sat down with Tony, actually it was Tony and myself, because I guess I think they'd been, they tried, they'd taken a couple of stabs at it already and, and nobody has sort of gotten it where they wanted to. So then I met with Tony and Tony and I didn't know each other. And then we just started sitting down and hashing it out. And uh, his partner, Spike Brandt was uh, also involved in the beginning, but then Spike sort of left to go work on, um, I think some Tom and Jerry stuff. But anyway, so then Tony and I just started hashing it out and we were both of the same belief that if we were going to do this, we were going to do it in the way that we would have liked to have seen the show. And so the first thing, you know, the first thing we tackled was, strangely enough, was how old are these kids? Because nobody knew. And we would ask people, how old do you think they are? And then people would go, well, some would go, well, they're in college. And then other people would go, well, they're in high school. And then other people would go, well, no, they're in their 20s. You know, they're out of college. And so nobody knew. So we went into the archives. That's one of the nice things about working for a place like Warner Brothers is they have all of this stuff is archived. So all the original pitch materials from the original show are there and you can read them all. So we went back to the original material and read and discovered that, oh, they're high school students. And, oh, they all basically live in the same town. And, it, and it, the town, I don't think the town had a name in the, in the original materials. It certainly wasn't Coolsville, uh, but it was, it was like La Jolla. They had described it as a beachside town. So, so we were like, okay, let's create. So we created the idea of this, of Crystal Cove. Um, and we said, let's, instead of having them driving all over the place, so you never know where they live or see their parents. I said, let's, let's set them in a town. Let's give them parents Let's give them backstories. Let's give them, you know, let's add some dimensions to their characters. Let's give them real personalities. And um, and then we had to figure out, well, what's the deal with this town, though? And we, Tony and I had been talking about that there were places in the United States that were regarded as sort of supernatural towns or supernatural. You could take these haunted tours. They were all over the place. So we said, what if we constructed a town that... It, it took all of the past history that we know about the show and just sort of upended it. So, so this town has a history with all of the original monsters and ghosts that you saw in the original series, and they've figured out a way to monetize it. So, um, cause part of the conceit of the show, if you really look at it is that adults cannot be trusted. That was like a theme <laughs> that we wanted to, to impart. And um, so we created this, I, the idea of, this town that's completely run on 
you know, supernatural tourism. And every one of the kids' parents are involved in some way. And the economy of this town is all based on it. And the only thing screwing it up for everybody is these four kids and their dog who keep disproving that these things are actually supernatural, which is driving tourism away. So the town hated the kids. They hated them. They were continually being arrested for sticking their nose in places that they weren't to go, but they just couldn't stop them. So that was, so that became the conceit of the show. And then we said, but then let's, so why do they keep going? Why do they just keep going even when they're being told not to do it? And then we, and then that was when we created the idea of the, there was a prior mystery incorporated that had vanished and uh, Daphne finds that locket in the very first episode and that opens it up. Uh, and, and then we started layering the story, you know, with uh, what should we call it? Um, Dynamite. Why well, can't I remember her first name? Um, Angel. Uh, Angel Dynamite. Thank you. Uh, Angel Dynamite, you know, which that we would make her Angel Dynamite and Mr. E and all of these were all of these old members of the team, although you don't find that out till later, you know, and they were all still circling Crystal Cove because they were all still looking for the treasure and that treasure being the planetospheric disc. So that would become our big story that we would tell throughout the season and then into the second season. And then in the second season, uh, Mike Ryan, my friend, Mike Ryan came on the show as a, as a story editor because the first season was pretty much written by Tony and I, even though we hired other writers to come in and write them. Um, and the way we would function was we would go to lunch and go, all right, this is the idea. And we would start just bouncing ideas back and forth. And while we would do that, Tony would sketch uh, whatever he wanted the monster to be or what he was thinking in his head. And I would just pepper him with questions and we would bat him back and forth until after a couple of lunches, we had the outline of a story and I would go off and write it. And then either I would write the episode or give the, out the, the outline to a, a writer to do. But it was just us for the first season because that was the way Warner Brothers worked. So we didn't have a staff or anything. And then the second season, um, because I was also working on Batman at that time, uh, they, we brought in Tony. And so the second season was created by Tony and myself and Mike Ryan, literally in late nights in Mike's office, just pretty much just getting drunk and just throw, just coming up with our crazy notions that we wanted to do. And Mike's Mike was fun because Mike added the whole, really brought in the whole Nibiru aspect of the whole thing because he was obsessed with that stuff so we took what tony and i had been doing and then we just layered in the nibiru stuff which we had been flirting with um ideas about it in the first season with the dog dies and all that stuff and then it really came to fruition in the second season when mike came aboard because he had all this information about you know the uh the, the lining up of the planets and because that's all based on real stuff but we're real you know conspiracy theory stuff but so mike was a integral part of the show in the second season in in terms of pushing us in that direction and you know that's why and we you know then then part of the other fun of the show was the fact that we would put all these references movie references and stuff like there's an entire episode that's uh, devoted to Werner herzog you know there's an entire episode devoted to the one with harlan ellison is all devoted to lovecraft and stuff so we had um you know so we were able with that format, we were able to explore pretty much anything we wanted to do. Uh, 
I don't even know if that answers your original question because I can't remember what your original question was. <laughs> I, uh, yeah, I don't remember either. <laughs> and when you're working on an overarching story like that, um, obviously you mentioned that the Nibiru stuff came in later, but how much did you know going into an episode? Like, did you have a huge timeline of when things would get revealed? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We had a we had a board. I have pictures of it somewhere. Um, oh no, we had it all mapped. It was all mapped out. It we had a we had two cork board, two you know wall sized cork boards. So it basically filled two walls of my office with note cards that mapped the entire thing out. Uh, no, it was all planned. I mean, obviously, new things would come up here and there that we would add in additionally, but. Uh, it was pretty much all like we always knew that the show was going to be a prequel. So we knew what we were working towards. We always knew that it was uh, the planospheric disc was always going to lead us to this sort of ancient evil that lived within the city. We, you know, there was the whole, there's in one of the episodes or later episodes when they talk about it, the town that fell into the sea, that's all based on a real town. Um, and uh, a lot of stuff was based on like weird lore that we had heard too. So, but no, to answer your question, we had mapped the only thing that was not mapped out. Um, and it literally came from the fans was, you know, I think the third episode, the, whatever the Gatorsburg episode was, our art director, Dan Crawl, who's a fantastic guy and really, really created the look of the show. Um, Dan made a put a gag in one of the backgrounds of a, the neon sign on the hotel where they stay, uh, where the several of the words go out on the sign and it spells out the dog dies. And we did it as a gag. It was just a gag, you know. Uh, and then we started to notice that on the uh, on the blogs and stuff that people were really getting into that. They had they created all these conspiracy theories about what does that mean. Are they setting up that Scooby's going to die? Uh, blah, 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 blah. You know, so there were tons of these theories, and we thought, oh, we have to capitalize on this somehow. So that that theory of the dog dies, we we worked it into the whole notion of that the the entity living beneath the the um, of Crystal Cove, in order to become corporeal, needed uh, an animal host. And that, to us, was our explanation for it needed a particular particular type of talking animal host, which doesn't really make a lot of sense. But uh, you know, it's uh, but we we were like we're never going to explain why Scooby can talk. We didn't want to get into the weeds on that. But I said, wouldn't it be? We were like, would it be cool if the entity couldn't become physical unless it took over a host body? And um, and what if that host body ultimately was supposed to be Scooby's? And so that was what led to the creation of uh, all the different teams that all had um, different animals in them. So the like the original team of, you know, with Professor Pericles. And then if you go in in the second season, we introduced all the other teams that also had animals. And and the idea was and it was kind of create it was what we came up with was that the entity had been searching for centuries for an animal to take over and every time it had failed something had always happened the animal wasn't worthy or something's got screwed up like there's the one with the uh i think the monks and the pig or whatever and that one got screwed up and there's the steampunky ones that had the, the um the chimp that got screwed up 
But then Scoob finally with Scooby was the one that Nibiru would actually be able to take over. And, you know, and the concept of Nibiru is a very love. It's even though Nibiru is taken from a different thing, it was a very Lovecraftian concept. It was the idea of these, the elder gods coming down and, you know, possessing some sort of creature to take over the world, which is pretty much what happens at the end of the series with Professor Pericles. Um, so that was, so that was really the big, that was really the only thing that had, wasn't pre-planned, but came out by the third, ep- I mean, by the third episode, we had sort of figured out how we were going to do that. Um, and, it, but it was really fun to see the fans create an idea in their heads of a conspiracy. And then we just took that idea and ran with it. So uh, I, I like that kind of thing because, you know, it's when people can get involved in a show to the extent that they're, that they're like, Oh, I wonder if this means that. And this means that I always, I love, I love to like validate some of those feelings because they were pretty close to, to, to figuring out where we were going with it. And then they just took it a little one step further. And, and we really liked that one step further. So we just decided to run with it when we heard the whole thing about the dog dies and it became a very integral part of the entire series. So thank you fans. Um, yes. So there you go. Just to delve a little bit deeper into the timeline. Yeah. Um, did you, when you were naming the town, did you have that Spanish conquistador story in mind already? Yeah. 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 Cause I think it's uh yes, we did be again, because that story of the conquistadors and all that stuff, was based on something that really happened. I forget where the town was, but there was, there was, a, I think it happened in the 17th century. I think there was this, there was a town that literally everybody disappeared. And I think it was a coastal town. Um, I don't know if that's where we got the name. I don't remember how the name of Crystal Cove came to be. We, it was low. It was always meant, you know, we were basing it on what the, the original, uh, materials for the show, which had La Jolla pretty much, I think, as the uh, as the town. So we wanted to create a La Jolla type town in Crystal Cove. I don't know who or I don't know who came up with the name Crystal Cove, but that's what we came up with. But yeah, that conquistador story uh, that was always there. That was always part of the narrative of that they that the town itself had been built over some sort of ancient thing that it had killed or that it killed numerous times. Like the town disappeared essentially because uh, because of Nib- uh, Nibiru, because of the evil, and a lot of other stuff had happened because of the evil, and um, and we were and the show itself was just the latest iteration of the evil trying to rise up and take control of an animal. So yeah, it was always there. And was the planospheric disc space based on something real as well, or was that something that you had created? No, the Planisphere disc was something that Tony and I came up with. Uh, I don't. Again, I don't remember. We wanted to come up with, you know, this sort of intricate puzzle treasury kind of thing that a, you know, that when you put it together in the correct way, it would reveal things to you. I don't know where that idea came from, but it was. Uh, it was very much of a sort of, you know, Indiana Jones, Da Vinci Code sort of kind of thing where you, some sort of ancient uh, artifact that if you could put the pieces together. I mean, it, it was it was partially for plot reasons, too, uh, that we would 
we wanted a disc that could break apart so that we could there'd be multiple episodes where you were trying to find it and uh and then once you did find it we had to sort of figure out how you know it once you you had to move it into a certain position it would show you clues or coordinates and stuff like that like I was telling somebody the other day, you know, we hit a lot of Easter eggs in that show. And one of them that we hit was when the planet, I believe it's when the planet spheric disc comes together and gives the longitude and latitude of where they're supposed to go. That longitude and latitude is actually the coordinates of Sam Register's desk, uh, Sam Register's office on the Warner Brothers lot. And uh, we were always hoping that somebody would figure that out. I don't think anybody <laughs> ever did. But um we did that you know we we just kept thinking we were like what are, what are we going to do if somebody actually tries to pinpoint this and find sam's office and we're like ah, who, who knows we probably won't be working here when that happens but uh and and that was the truth but there was a lot of stuff in there like we uh i think the show lost was still on the air when we were making that show and if you were a fan of lost you know that there was this whole like number sequence that they used to use that was sort of a red herring on that show we did the same thing we it's in several episodes where they find all these numbers and you know they they're all like what the fuck are these numbers and those numbers are the exact numbers from lost so we uh we buried stuff like that all over the place uh, especially like in the in the chargar gothicon episode the lovecraft takeoff there's there's stuff all through there that we hit and um and that was fun for us i was telling somebody the other day one of the one of the funnest things for me was I said that I already told you that uh, our executive in England had quit or vanished anyways. And so all we had left that was giving us notes was uh, the broadcast standards and practice guy. Now, traditionally, those guys are the worst because they're there to essentially catch anything that you might have done that could be offensive or get the studio in trouble or whatnot. But the guy we had in England was a big sci-fi horror fan. And so he got a kick out of finding all the clues that, and all the things that we would hide in episodes that were references to movies or science fiction stories or other things. And so every script that I would turn in, when he would give us back his notes, part of his notes were a listing of all of the things that he found in the script. And he would always quiz us at the end, like, did I get them all? Did I find him? And we were like, okay, you got them all in this episode. But then some episodes he wouldn't get them all. And he'd be, he would be so disappointed that he, he missed a couple. But that became sort of a game with us over the course of the series. And, uh, and he became a huge, I mean, he became a big fan of the show, but it was just so fun to see what we could slip in there that would stump him because he was pretty good. He, he would usually find everything. But again, that was another wrinkle to that show that just made it really enjoyable for all of us is that, you know, we were, I think everybody from top to bottom on the show were, we were all big fans of the franchise, but we were all also big sci-fi and horror fans too. And so, you know, everybody kind of got to do a lot of like, well, we, I've always wanted to do this and stick this in something. So we were able, we, that show allowed us to do that. And I, that was why I think people had a really good time working on it. So, because we all, everybody really, we had a very good time working on that show. It was, uh, it was sometimes shows are really difficult and, awful and unpleasant but not that one that one despite the fact that it was a very small crew it was we all had a very good time working on it with um the darkness of the show and the overarching 
kind of sci-fi story. Uh, was it originally supposed to be marketed towards children or was that kind of amb uh, ambiguous? Such an interesting question. So the show originally was, yes, it was, it was supposed to be marketed to older kids, but the show itself was supposed to be scary. They really, that was one of the, probably the only main thing that Sam told me in the beginning was they really wanted it to be scary. They wanted a legitimately scary Scooby-Doo show. And so that was, so we gave them that. And in fact, one of the episodes, the, um, the spookified children episode where all the children rebel against the parents in the town, the uh, cartoon network actually kicked it back to us for being too scary. They said, you can't, you got to change this. It's too scary. And we're like, really? Cause no one thought you could make a Scooby-Doo episode actually legitimately scary, but we did. And so we had to go back and trim some stuff and change music in a particular sequence because apparently it was freaking people out too much. So the show itself was, was originally supposed to be a, a truly scary show for kids. And then it was too, and then it became too scary and they made us tone it down. But it, no, it was always meant for, it was always meant for kids, but part of what I've always liked doing, and, and I know Tony does too, with these shows is not just to make them for kids. You know, that, that show, Mystery Incorporated was designed for, yes, if you're a child, you're going to be entertained by it, but it's also designed for parents or people in their twenties or whatnot to be watching the show and enjoy it as well. Cause I'm a parent. I have two kids. I have two daughters and I cannot tell you how excited I get when I get to sit down and watch a show with them that I actually enjoy watching. Because the majority of them make me want to, you know, gouge my eyes out with uh, with large knives. Because um, they're just so boring and so like blah, it's the same thing and da da da. So whenever they find a show that I can get into too, it's like, yep, that's the show we're gonna watch. So that was our goal with Mystery Incorporated was we're gonna make a show that the parents would like as much as the kids, and. Um, and I think we succeeded because the majority of the fans are not kids. The majority of the fans are actually the parents of the kids who started watching the show. I mean, I have, I have a lot of friends who's, who are to this day are like, I was, I was binge watching it with my kid and, oh my God, blah, 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 blah. And the parents are the ones I hear the most from. Uh, so that's, I, that's great. You know, that's, to me, that's the goal of any good animated show is that, that's and I think that's why movies from Pixar work so well, and some Disney stuff and other and DreamWorks, you know, is that they appeal to adults and kids. They don't just appeal to kids, and so it's it's to me what you should be striving for. A lot of shows don't, but Mystery Incorporated certainly did. Is it difficult to get into the mindset of writing a show that appeals to both generations? No, not really. Uh, not for me, at least. Um, you know, there are certain things that you can't do in kids' animation. And as long as you avoid those things, you can pretty much, I mean, I feel you can tell virtually any story you want. I mean, you can't, you know, the big no-nos, sexuality, no, nothing sexual, not even real implied sexual, that, that stay away from that, stay away from swearing or derogatory, you know, words or... Um, anything like that, you know, general mean, you know, that super like abusively mean stuff, you know, obviously you stay away from, but those barring all of that, it's a pretty wide open field. So when we sit down or when I sit down to write these things, I don't 
write them for kids. I, I'm writing them to, I'm writing them the, basically the story that I would want to see. You know, you have to have, obviously, you have to be a bit of a child yourself, of, of which no one would say that I wasn't. So there's definitely that aspect of my personality, which I think helps. But um, no, you don't sit, you can, I don't, I don't, at least when I've talked to people about writing for animation, I, I always say, don't, don't think write for kids because you're, you're hamstringing yourself. Basically you're, you're going to stop yourself from going to places that might be really entertaining. If you think that, Oh, a kid wouldn't like that. One of my biggest pet peeves when working with studios is when I'll throw a word into a script and I'll get a note back. Uh, a child's not going to understand that word. And my response is always the same. It's like, so, so what? So he asked his parents what that word means. And Oh, look at that. He just learned a new word. I go, what's wrong with that? Why are, why are we dumbing down these shows for kids, making them stupider? It doesn't make any sense to me. I grew up watching the cartoons I grew up with, which, you know, like Looney Tunes and other Saturday morning cartoons. They, look, some of them were terrible, but, you know, some of them were relatively sophisticated. And I would have to ask my parents, like, what does that mean? Or what's going on there? And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. And so to me, if, if you continually dumb down these shows, and trust me, there is... There is, you know, it's not as bad as it used to be, but there's definitely, you know, a section of the children's animation community which feels that everything should be non-threatening. There should be no words that people don't understand. Uh, no one should be offended. Um, no one, you know, uh, all jokes should be, you know, there should be a tinge of kindness to them and there should be no conflict. And it's kind of like, ugh. I don't want to do that. It sucks. Uh, so, so anyways, but to answer your question, I, I never go, I never start writing something with the intention of it being for kids. I write something for my own, pretty much for my own enjoyment. Like, I think this is good. I like this. It doesn't, it doesn't step on any of the rules that you kind of have to follow in terms of, like I said, the sexuality and the swearing and stuff like that. As long as I'm not doing that, uh, to me, I, everything is fair game. So if I put a big word in there or political, su I, you know, every now and then we'll slip in some political subject matter or we're telling a emotional story that maybe you normally wouldn't see in a kid's cartoon. So what? You know what? So what? It, 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 I think a kid's, I think kids, people don't give kids enough credit. You know, this show was, Scooby was designed, Mystery Corps was designed for kids, I think, seven up. And having daughters that are nine and almost six, they can handle it. The only thing I would say about Scooby is it might be a little scary for some kids. Um, but subject matter wise, uh, it's, it's fine. I do think if some kids are susceptible to being scared really easily, like my older daughter is, she can't watch this. She doesn't watch the show. She can't watch it because it's too scary for her. She will someday. But my younger daughter has absolutely no problem with it. So that part sort of depends on the kid. But in terms of uh, subject matter, I don't think anything should be off limits except the sexual stuff. For you personally, was it at all difficult to keep the darker tone while also, you know, inserting comedy and the lightheartedness of the Scooby franchise in your writing? No, no, it was uh, no, not at all, because I, I've. I love, I'm a first and foremost, I love horror movies. I'm a huge horror movie fan. Uh, I've written horror movies. Um, I've, you know, I watch horror movies constantly. So 
No, um, it didn't at all. Uh, it was stuff that I write nat a lot of times just comes out humorous anyways. And writing something scary was just, I loved it. I would love, if I could just continually work on shows where I got to do horror and comedy at the same time, fantastic. Uh, but I have yet to be able to do another show like that. But I dream of doing another show like that someday because it's, it was one of my favorite working experiences to do that. Um, the nice thing now with animation is that because of Netflix uh, um, and other shows like Am and other places like Amazon, they're finally getting into doing like true adult animation that isn't reliant on, um, you know, like that's not just a sitcom. That's actually a, an adult drama or adult horror animated show, uh, you know, and they've had some success on Netflix with them with like Castlevania and things like that. So. I'm hoping that we're going to continue to do that to the point where we actually get to do an actual animated horror thing. Because I think it would be great. But to answer your, to find that as a finale, to finally answer that question, no, not, not whatsoever. It was easy. It was a, it was a piece of cake for me because it's the exact kind of stuff I love to do. As producer, head writer in an overarching show and, you know, bringing the odd freelance writer on, how do you make sure that all the characters seem consistent? <sighs> rewriting really you know this uh, it's really that it's just that's it you know the shows animated shows or any show for that matter they it goes through a sort of uh, metamorphosis process which you just kind of let it you have to kind of let it just take its course and and it starts with you know when you write when you write the pilot and write the the voices um that's the first step and then the second step is is the what the actors are going to bring to it you know, one of the interesting things that happened on Mystery Incorporated was we had to, you know, Frank Welker, who was the voice of um, Fred and at that, and also the voice of Scooby, you know, Frank had been on the show since 1968. So he was the, Frank was sort of the, uh, you know, he was the, the final, the final uh, old guard that we had to get past in terms of whether he was going to go for how we were doing this particular show. And so, at the very first record, he start he read the script and started doing Fred how he thought we wanted Fred to be done. And we said, no, Frank, we don't want you to change anything. We want you to do that same voice, the same attitude, the same inflection, all of it. We wrote the character with your voice in mind. We just wrote him differently. Uh, but he, he should sound just like Fred. Because, you know, Fred in our version of Mystery Incorporated, Fred is slightly on the spectrum. You know, he is slightly, he's a little bit Asperger's-y. And uh, which is, you know, with his obsession with traps and his inability to sort of read human emotions properly and everything. So again, we never said this in the series, but this is what we, this was what was in our minds. So, but the point I was gonna make was when you write these shows and then it goes to the actors, the actors then bring a whole new element to it. And if you're paying attention, what you do is you then you listen to the way they're reading the dialogue and then you go back and you rewrite the dialogue. So to answer your question, if I get a script in and the dialogue, the uh, I can't hear the actual actor's voices in the dialogue that I'm reading, I go through and I adjust the dialogue. You know, that's just it's just you just that's part of the job, though. You know, part of the job of, of being either the head writer or the story editor or whatnot is to make sure that all of the scripts sound like they're coming from the same show. The tricky part is 
not to just completely step on the voice of the writer who wrote those scripts. The sweet spot is to be able to let the writer's voice be heard, but still make it feel like it's all part of the same show. If you, if you don't, if you don't do that, you end up with a very disjointed series where one episode seems like the show and then other episodes don't seem anything like the show. So it's just, it's just rewriting going through and just making, putting, as they would say, putting everything on model, as they would say. And speaking of trying to get Frank Welker on board with the way you were doing the show, uh, how did you get Casey Kasem on to do Shaggy's dad? <laughs> okay, so, so Casey had, you know, obviously had been doing Shaggy for a long time. By the time we did the show, Casey was not in great health. So we knew that he wasn't going to be able to play Shaggy. And I don't even think he wanted to play Shaggy at that point because he was, he was pretty, you know, he, he had about, you, you could get a, maybe a good half hour out of Casey and then, and then he was just, he would just get too weak. So we came up with the idea of making him Shaggy's father to sort of continue all of that, continue the unity for it. But in terms of getting him, it was easy. He, he wanted to be part of it. Um, and he was more than, you know, because it had been a while since he had been doing it. Um, Matt Lillard had taken over the role for a while. And, um, and he was, you know, Matt had sort of become the character. And I think Casey was fine with that. But Casey also knew his own health wouldn't allow him to, to be as involved as he had been before. So that was why we created the, the, the role of uh, Shaggy's father and, uh, and gave it to Casey because it was sort of our way of paying homage to him and, and getting his involvement. And, and we were, I was, um, we were very fortunate that we did because he passed away, I think during the making while we were doing that show or maybe just after we did it. Uh, so we were all very excited and happy that we got to, got to put him in there and got to use him at the very end. And when you have actors that have been doing the role for so long, did you ever get any pushback on, you know, what's maybe fits their character or not? Mm, uh, we did. It was interesting. We, the only one we got real pushback from in the beginning was uh, Mindy Cohn, who was playing Velma. Because, like I said at the very top of the uh, this thing, uh, Mindy, didn't al Mindy also did not know what we were doing with the character. We purposely kept her in the dark. So when she read the character initially, she didn't understand why the character was being, was acting the way she was acting. And that was exactly what we wanted her to feel because that was what Velma was going through. But it made, it, it put, it made, it made her uncomfortable with some of the dialogue that she was saying. And so we had to, we had to sort of talk her through it and explain that she just had to trust us. And there was a reason for this and we were going somewhere with this and she did. And she was great, you know, but in the very beginning, in the very, I think the first couple of episodes, she just didn't understand why we were making Velma act the way Velma was acting. And we, we sat her down and just sort of had to have a, a talk with her and just kind of go, we get it. We think you're brilliant and we love what you're doing. Just trust us. There's a reason that she's acting like this and it will all become clear later on. And, and then once she trusted us, everything was awesome, you know, but uh, yeah, that was the only real issue we had with one of the main actors. Um, the only other time we had trouble with an actor on that show was when we did the uh, Twin Peaks episode, when we brought in the uh, the little person who had played the uh, 
the 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 dancing man or whatever they call him on Twin Peaks in the little red suit. Uh, he was he. I don't think he really dug it. I don't think he was particularly happy to be there. So he uh, he he was not happy when he was there, and he was supposed to come back in the final episode, and and uh, and just didn't he, he didn't refuse to do it. But he quoted us a price that was just so exorbitantly expensive that we were like, we can't, we can't do it. So that was why we ended up getting Harlan Ellison again, bringing Harlan back for the very last episode because we couldn't get the the little the little person from um uh what call it from Twin Peaks. He just he was not having it. He was he was not into it basically. But the, besides him, I think that everybody else we had on the show. I mean, we had George Siegel. We had. You know, we had a lot of you know pretty decent people. Florence Henderson, who was fantastic, uh, who were really cool. But everybody else was pretty great. We didn't really have any issues. Even Harlan Ellison, who everybody thought was going to be a major pain in the ass, uh, you know, Harlan agreed to do it because I he and I were friends, and um, and he was like, "Are you going to pay me?" We're like, "Yeah, of course we're going to pay you." Harlan goes, "I'm in." So he did it, and he was everybody was. Yeah, everybody was really afraid because Harlan has a reputation for being kind of a pain in the ass, but he was awesome. Uh, he was great, and he loved it. I have a picture somewhere of uh, we went to because Harlan was he was he's since passed away, but he was and he was kind of sick then, and he got sick, and I got a frantic call from my from my good from a friend of mine, saying that hey, do you have a copy of Harlan's episode? Because he's not doing well, and they're not sure he's going to make it through the weekend. And I would love, and it'd be great if he could see it. And I'm like, oh, shit. Okay, well, let me call the guys. So I called our post place, and they were like, we could put together a special cut, a special like dub of it for you. So they did a special dub. I drove up there with my buddy Josh on the weekend. We went to Harlan's house, and we sat there in Harlan's living room with Harlan in his pajamas, because he wasn't feeling well. Uh, and his wife and myself and my friend Josh, and we all watched it together. And I have pictures of Harlan like a child sitting in front of the TV, like three or four feet away with this big smile, just in, just loving it, just enjoying the hell out of it. So that was extremely, that was really, that was one of the nicest moments for me on the show was because he was kind of a idol, you know, Harlan's kind of an idol of mine and, um, and very inspirational to me as a writer. And, to see him so, you know, in you know, engrossed in it and just so enjoying it, knowing that he was sick and and that this had cheered him up and everything, it was just that was a that was one of the moments that I that I will always have with me from that show is is that moment, and I'm, and fortunately have a picture of it too. That's amazing. And working as the producer or showrunner, did you get to handpick episodes that you wanted to write and which ones would go to a different writer? Of course. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, of course. Um, yeah. Any, any idea that I really wanted, the only episode that I didn't get to write myself that I really wanted to write was the, the Chargar Gothicon episode, the HP Lovecraft, cause I'm a huge HP Lovecraft fan, but my friend Adam Beecham wrote that one. And, um, I, I think I wrote the outline and then Adam wrote the script, uh, and Adam did a, a, a wonderful job. So, uh, that's the only episode that I, if I could go back, I would have probably have tried to write myself because I, that was just, that's my wheelhouse, but no, every, all the other episodes I got to, you know, is if you look, I think I, I you know, I wrote the, I got to write the pilot. I got to write the end episode. I got to write the first and last episodes of both seasons or maybe Mike might've written actually the last episode of the second season. Cause I was too busy, 
but I, I pretty much got to write all the episodes that I wanted to write, except for the Chargar Gothicon one. You know, if I could have, I would have written every episode, but you just don't have the time with that schedule. So, but yeah, that is the nice thing about being a head writer or the showrunners. Yeah, you can cherry pick which episodes you want to write um, and then farm out the ones you you don't want to write. But I actually, I mean, most of those episodes I, I really, really enjoyed. And, and part of the fun of, of doing that too is I get to hire my friends uh, or other writers I admire. So that that's also that's also nice. I mean, we I got to put a... There were a bunch of a lot of people who worked on that show. In fact, almost everybody who worked on the show was a friend of mine. And and like like I said, John McCann, who wrote that um, troll episode, gave me one of my first jobs. Uh, Paul Rugg, who wrote several episodes, also gave me one of my first jobs. And had you know, I, and I had known them for a very very long time. So it was I was very happy to be able to return the favor. And um, you know, Adam I mentioned and Mike and. So it's it's great when you get to work with friends of yours and uh, whoever I think did Hoffmeyer I can't remember if my friend Mark Hoffmeyer wrote one too but anyways that's you know that's one of the nice things about being in that position is you can you can hire your friends you can you know pay your friends back for times that they were kind to you and you also can pretty much make sure that every really cool episode ends up in your hands <laughs> so it's it's good to be in charge and when you're doubling as producer showrunner writer uh, are you, do you find you're more protective of the storylines that you had written yourself? Yeah, yeah, you are. Uh, it's not so much the storylines. I'm sometimes more, I've gotten much better at this over the years, but you know, um, you can sometimes get a little too precious about dialogue or particular story points. And I, I'm, you know, I did in the past kind of, I could be a pain in the ass in terms of when some they would want to change something of mine, um, I'm much, much better about it now. I don't take it quite so personally, but um, anyway, so, you know, storylines, no, because, um, but don't, you got to understand too, is I wrote the outlines for most of those episodes. So, um, you know, the only time I would get protective was not really much from the writers. It was from executives who wanted to change a particular thing that we wanted to do which I felt very strongly about, um, you know, there, there were some gags in, and usually that revolved around jokes that I wanted to do. I mean, there was in the, in the mystery solvers, uh, state finals episode, which was, I think the 12th episode in the first season or something, which I wrote, which was designed to be a parody of all the old Hanna-Barbera shows that had sort of ripped off Scooby-Doo. We had some jokes with speed buggy that got cut that were just deemed to um, pushing the line too much. I think it was, and I know they, they ended up in some version of the show and I haven't seen it in a long time, so I can't remember which version, but we had an, we had where speed buggy, they think drowns and then they drain the water and she tries to revive him by giving him mouth to mouth through his exhaust pipe. I think we got, if I'm not mistaken, they made us change that and, there were particular times we would do gags where they just felt, oh, <laughs> my favorite one. <laughs> I think my favorite one was we had uh, uh, in the second season when Scooby-Doo falls in love with Nova, the dog, who doesn't really speak. By the way, for those of you uh, you know looking for Easter eggs, Nova is named after the character from Planet of the Apes the female lead in Planet of the Apes or one of the female leads that, that hooks up with Charlton Heston who doesn't speak. 
So that's where we got that name, Nova. That's why the dog doesn't speak. Um, but in the in the first time when she's, you know, if you remember, she gets hospitalized at one point. We had her die at the end of that episode. <laughs> we had her, she, you know, in the episode, I think the episode ends with her. She sits up and that's the first time she actually says Nibiru. And then we had her flatline after that. So yeah, the episode ends with, uh, with her, um, <laughs> with her flatlining and, uh, and they came back and they're like, are you going to kill her? And we were like, well, we might, yeah, we might. We were thinking about it. They're like, you can't kill the dog. You can't kill a dog. You can't do that. We're like, all right, we won't kill her. Oh, hold on. They're trying to get up one second. Declining this. Uh, yeah, so that was, I remember that one we, we had to change and I wasn't happy about it, but you know, we, I understood why you couldn't kill the dog. So we, we did that, you know, we had to, if you're paying very close attention, um, when we get to the Creek stuff, a bot stuff towards the end of the sea, the second season and hot dog water decides to, you know, distract them while the gang gets away. And then you. If you listen carefully, you can hear machine gun fire, which pretty much lets us know that hot dog water is gunned down. But we weren't allowed to show any of that, you know, or even when uh, Angel Dynamite drowns, you know, if you'll notice, if you watch the show, you'll all of those things are relatively vague. And uh, we were able to do that. And we convinced them to let us show that because normally you couldn't kill characters on, on a show like that. But we, we convinced them because we knew that everything was going to reset in the end, that they were all going to come back to life. So we so that was how we got around uh, the network in terms of letting us ostensibly kill off certain characters. But they wouldn't the, the, the compromise was we weren't allowed to ever show it. We had to come up with ways to sort of leave it a little bit ambiguous. So, um, but... For the most part, whenever that would happen, it would just create, we just come up with a creative way to get around it. Now that you mentioned the Mystery Solvers Club State Finals, uh, how did the idea come about to bring back those old Hanna-Barbera characters? That was, I think it was, I, can't, I think it was my, my idea because when we were going back through the archival material, uh, it was, I, I think at some point we were like, my God, all they did for years Hanna-Barbera was cannibalize Scooby-Doo. It's the same, because if you look at those shows, they're the same show. You know, uh, what call Captain Caveman, Funky Phantom, Speed Buggy. Uh, they're all basically the same shows, just with a slightly different cast. And so I pitched Tony the idea of, what if we just, as a joke, I said, what if we just did an entire episode that featured all the different versions of of scooby-doo uh, the different iterations that hanna-barbera has done and then we make it only about the the sidekicks so all the sidekicks who never really solve the mysteries in any of those shows all suddenly they're forced to solve all the mysteries and and they liked it so that's how it came about and then we decided in the second season that we would do the same thing it, at the same episode so in both episode 12 of the first season and episode 12 of the second season we have sort of our standalone Hanna-Barbera episode. So in the second season, it was all about uh, Dino Mutt and uh, Blue Falcon. And the great part was that Frank Welker had done the voice of Dino Mutt. And so when we conceived the story, it was, we said, Frank, we want you to do exactly the same voice. Exactly. We want the exact same character. 
and we're going to juxtapose that against Blue Falcon, who is basically Christian Bale from Batman, um, <laughs> you know, which is completely different than what the original was. And then we had a bunch, and then there was there was more stuff in there about um, Johnny Quest. We had a bunch of Johnny Quest stuff in there that we had to trim out. But uh, but yeah, it was just again, it was we took those two episodes in both seasons, and we made those those were our homage and our loving our loving card to uh, to the old Hanna Barbera stuff because we were all such big fans of it. Um, we wanted to uh, we wanted to sort of reinvent it. We did it again too slightly in another episode when when they discover the underground city or underwater city with the Kriegstoffer bots the two little kids who who live in a giant mechanical whale uh those kid those kids are actually from a real show called I think it was called Moby Dick and it was the show Moby that was a show that was around the year before Scooby premiered and the name of their sea lion in that show was Scooby. And when we saw that, we were like, oh my God, they just literally reused the name. We said, we have to do this episode where we these kids show up with us with a sea lion that's named Scooby. And then the real Scooby gets upset that his name was taken by a sea lion and da-da-da-da-da. And then if you and if you also watch the show carefully, the two boys uh talk about their fathers. Their fathers are characters from the TV show Sequest. So, um, who we imply, by the way, are gay and live together on a submarine. <laughs> but again, we never, we never come out and actually say it. They just say that our dads are always gone and they're, they're out at sea. Um, but, uh, so we had a lot, I mean, we just, we had a lot of fun with stuff like that. I mean, Tony had, you know, Tony went on and did the, uh, the Scoob movie, which just came out recently, which I also did a little work on and, I you know the original versions of that movie I think had a lot more of the Hanna Barbera crossover stuff, and then they trimmed it out. But um, there's just there's a whole world of that stuff that people are not familiar with that we uh, that we had all that we had access to. So we just we used whatever we could find. And was the idea of uh, paying homage to older series, Scooby series and movies the way that the Hex Girls and Vincent Van Gogh were brought back as well? Yes, yes. Absolutely. Hex Girls was um, a big one. I think that Hex Girls, Tony loved the Hex Girls. So, and I like putting music in episodes. So um, that was that. That was where they came from. And we were somehow, I think we actually even got all the original actresses who played the Hex Girls in the original shows. Um, and then Vincent Van Gogh was just, uh, Vincent Van Gogh I loved because a, it was a character from the original or some of the original uh, early se- series. And B, I was a huge Vincent Price fan of like the Conqueror Worm and Witchmaster General and all of those. And to be able to do like little parody versions of those movies. And then we also, you know, we got Maurice uh, LaMarche to do it. And he was the voice of the brain. And he's like a iconic voice actor. And he's fabulous. And and I think that was the first time I might've ever worked with Maurice. And, um, you know, so it was just, I love those Vincent Van Gogh stuff. I wanted to do, we wanted to do more of them. I would have loved to have done an entire series of Vincent Van Gogh, but that's an example of sort of just our, a really deep fanboy love of those characters. And so we had to, we just had to put them in. Yeah. I have to say the Vincent Van Gogh episodes are some of my favorites for sure. 
Yeah, there's, and again, there was more, and we just had to cut stuff out for time, but God, I had a lot of fun writing those and, and being very, very silly with those because the way he, and also I really love the way that Maurice did that character is this sort of, you know, slightly effeminate, very, you know, high-strung actor. I, I just, I loved what he did with that. We had so much fun doing that, doing that character and doing all that stuff that um like i said i wish we could have done an entire spin-off series of that character because i think it would have been a blast definitely uh and when you were writing did you have a favorite character to write for fred uh hands down fred was always my favorite character to write for because i just loved how weird fred was um i love that fred was you know, in the original series, he didn't have a whole lot to do. He was sort of the good-looking guy who led the group. But personality-wise, he was always a bit flat. And we just sort of made him into this, this such an oddball, in my opinion, especially like in the second season where he's wandering around town, you know, looking like a hobo trying to find his parents. You know, I, I loved writing for that character because Fred was so earnest there was nothing malicious about Fred at all. He was just a, he was just sort of a good guy who just human emotions were just not his strong suit. And, um, and he viewed the world as just a place to set his traps and to keep things close to him. And, and, you know, like there's, there's, there's multiple episodes where he talks about, there's one episode where he talks about like how, when they, when the gang graduates from high school and college, they're all just going to live together in a house and they're always going to be together. <laughs> And, uh, and, and that was just how Fred, that was Fred's mind. You know, he, he kind of, he saw things in very simplistic terms in many, many ways. And um, that kind of character is just really, really fun to write for because he had such a good, that the character had such a good heart and he was so earnest that he never really saw, you know, his own faults or the fact that he was keeping people at arm's length by building traps to capture them. And, you know, and how, deeply wounded he was by the fact that he never really knew his real parents and his mother had vanished and and then the betrayal of his of the mayor and all of that stuff so he was a very interesting character i always loved writing for him because i just thought he was an extremely fun interesting character and i and i really liked what frank did too so fred so fred was easily my favorite character to write for and having the show all set in the same town, what was it like to be able to play with all of the recurring supporting characters like Sheriff Stone and uh, the the two mayors? Great. It was great. Yeah, the two different mayors. Um, it was great. It was, you know, and it, it was it was what I think sets this this particular iteration of the show apart from others is the fact that we did center it in one place. We didn't have them going all over the place. Um we had a whole supporting cast that was a lot of fun um, for the kids to play off of. And um, yeah, it was just, it was really nice to sort of create that world that hadn't been created before in a franchise that had been around for 40 years. And, um, you know, we really, it also too played into the, you know, having the town and access to the parents and the sheriff and everybody else. It also played into our central theme of adults cannot be trusted. You know, kids need to rely upon themselves and not just believe what they're being told, which was one of the themes of the whole show. 
and uh, and and they functioned in that way. So it was great. It's just a, it just basically it gave us a much bigger canvas to play to play with. And I think when you have that, and you can you can really explore it, it makes everything you're doing have that much more gravity to it because it seems real and it's this world becomes real to people. And so when things happen in it, it, uh, it has, it takes on greater meaning to them. So I think it to us, to me, it was really important for us to establish Crystal Cove and the people that lived in it in order to make the show really stand on its own. And uh, you know, I, I can't imagine if we had, if we had just done it with them driving around, I don't think we would have been able to nearly do, you know, even come close to, to doing what we actually did with the show. And out of the various supporting characters, do you have a favorite or a favorite uh, actor who played that character? Yes. Uh, Professor Pericles was my absolute favorite character. And I, I loved Udo Kier who played Professor Pericles. Um, you know, I had never worked with Udo before but I knew who he was because, and a lot of people don't know this unless they're film buffs or whatever, but Udo Kier, you know, is, he's got, you know, he's touched a lot of the movie industry. I mean, he's an icon in Germany. He's like a God. And, you know, he worked with Andy Warhol and um, he's been in, he's, he's like a regular in Lars von Trier's movies. I mean, he's a big, he was a big deal, but nobody really, people don't really know him in America as much as they know him in Europe or they, they know his face or whatnot. But I remember when we first cast him, we got a little pushback because he's, he is German and he has a very thick German accent. And, uh, and so sometimes that would make him a little bit hard to understand, but we were like, I don't, we were just like, I don't care. We, uh, he's awesome. Um, and, and he got really, really into the character uh, to the point that he, there was one time I remember, or actually happened a couple of times. He was, he liked to flap his arms as the parrot uh, when he was doing his dialogue and his shirts would make noise in the microphone. So we would have to say, Udo, we can't, we can't have you flapping your arms like that because it's making too much noise. And he goes, Oh, well, I'll just take my shirt off. And then he would just take his shirt off and do the entire record shirtless. And uh, which we just howled with laughter and thought was amazing. Um, but yeah, he did that. He would do that type of stuff. And he would have these, you know, he told these great stories about Warhol and how he met Warhol and working with Lars von Trier. And he was just a very interesting guy. And so getting to work with somebody like him and since since uh, Professor Pericles had a relatively significant role in the series, you know, we got to know each other quite well. And, you know, he invited me out to his place in Palm Springs. And he's just a very interesting guy from a time in Hollywood and in time in movies, which I, you know, wasn't even born for a lot of it. So to get that knowledge from him and to just to talk to him for hours uh, was just fantastic. And I, I have since tried to put Udo in several things and in the same, I get the same pushback, which was um, like, I tried to put him in uh, all hail King Julian, which is the, when I left Warner brothers, the show that I did for DreamWorks and I originally tried to cast him as the uh, as a villain in that show, a recurring character, and and uh, had to replace him because there I, I didn't win the fight in terms of his accent. They were like, "Oh, you can't understand him," so that I lost that fight. Uh, but and I was really bummed. Although the actor that we did get ultimately play the role was 
equally as great. But I just, I happen to really like Udo a lot and find him to be in a tremendously interesting person. So, uh, so yeah, that was, so he's far, hands down, my favorite, my favorite character uh, beyond the main characters and my favorite, um, one of my favorite actors to work with on that show. And I also, in little known fact, Tony Cervoni and I have, have each owned the only two uh, Pe- Professor Pericles dolls that were ever made for merchandising. They, uh, they briefly at one point were going to do a toy line of the show and they made demo copies of Professor Pericles. Uh, and when it was decided to abandon doing that for various reasons, they gave Tony and I each the dolls and, uh, and that doll now sits in a place of prominence in a box somewhere in storage. But um, yeah, but, uh, but they're great. They're great. Uh, they're great. And when I'm, when I'm destitute and poor, I'll sell it on eBay and hopefully make some money. No, it, uh, it was, I won't even let my daughters play with it. They, uh, they've, they've tried to get it out of the box. I'm like, Nope, can't touch it. Can't touch professor Pericles. That is off limits. <laughs> Why did they abandon the toy line? Oh, I don't know. Um, it's always a mystery how they're, how they do that stuff to me. Um, I, I honestly don't know. Uh, I think because they felt, well, it's the main characters and we already have toys of them. And, you know, it, it, it just, it, it's, you have to have, you know, the studio has to be behind doing it. The marketing department has to be behind doing it. And there was just no real urgency to it. They didn't, the marketing department was kind of like wishy-washy on it. Cartoon Network didn't care about the show. And Warner Brothers, you know, didn't have the the pull to just make them do it. Because so they just didn't, you know. And, and unfortunately, when they don't make the toy for your show, it does hurt the show. Because, you know, that's where they make a lot of money off those shows is uh, is off the merchandising and the toys. And so I've been in that position many, many times where, you know, why didn't you do more? Well, because they didn't make any toys. If they had made toys, we probably would have done more. But they never did. I think. There are a couple of iterations that came out after the fact of our version, but I'm not sure. But certainly never any that were unique to the show, like Professor Pericles. So it's a bummer. But yeah, they didn't do that. I mean, a perfect here's a great and, and a perfect example of it is when we did Batman, which came right after. We went to Mattel and we st- stylistically it was a different looking show, and so they you know we thought oh this is great, and then. We went to Mattel and they gave us the, uh, we showed them the designs and they were like, hey, do you think you guys could do like a motorcycle or a boat? And da 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 da, that would be great. And we're like, yeah, sure. So we figured out ways to work it on. And then what did they do? They didn't, they abandoned it completely and released their own toy line of Batman, completely disregarding ours, just their own toy line. You know, which is like, again, you, you think that we should be helping each other, but they just didn't feel that way about it. And so consequently that show never got a toy line. It also, like I said, was hated by Cartoon Network and we only ended up getting one season. But if we got a toy line based on that show, I guarantee we would have gotten a second season. That's all it would have taken. But Mattel just decided, nope, we have our own version, which seems counterproductive, but whatever. I'm not Mattel. That's what they do. Out of the episodes that you wrote for the show, do you have a favorite? Uh, good question. Um, hmm. yeah, it would probably be mystery solvers state finals. That's my favorite. 
of the of the episodes. I'm really happy with the way the pilot came out because pilots are are never easy, um, and they're I think they can you know they they're tough, and it's even harder nowadays because you kind of got to hook people with your pilot. You know, you don't even get a few episodes to hook them anymore. So I, I really, I was very, very happy with the way the pilot turned out. But my favorite episode to write and to do was the Mystery Solvers State Finals. Because that was the closest to probably the, my style of writing, which was just satire. And, uh, and I really enjoyed it. it was just really, that was my, yeah, easily my favorite. And like I said, I really loved the, the Lovecraft episode, even though I didn't write that one. Technically, Adam wrote that. And do you have a favorite monster or villain that appears in the show? Ooh, another good question. Jesus, now I have to go through all of them. All right, well, it's going to sound strange, but one of my favorite episodes that we did with, in terms of the monsters, uh, I'm not even sure if it's our best episode, but uh, where the, um, the, the, gargantu- um, the two gargantuans show up, the red one and the brown one in the town, and it starts with a woman singing this song in the, um, in the bar, and she's singing the song, The Words Get Stuck in My Throat. Uh, and then, and then the creatures attack and I, and they, and I believe they eat her or they damage her in some way. I can't, I can't remember. It might even be called War of the Gargantuas. I don't know, but it's directly based on an actual sixties B movie from Japan called War of the Gargantuas. And this song, there's a song in War of the Gargantuas, which is the words get stuck in my throat. It's the same song. So we licensed the song from that movie and then recreated it in the show with a different with a another somebody else singing it but use the exact same melody the exact same lyrics everything and even made the band look like the band that was in that movie and uh and unless you were like a real you know monster movie nerd there's no way you would ever know that but it to us it tickled us to no end that we had gone to such great lengths to do an homage to a movie that probably nobody even knew but tony and i loved it and so we thought yes let's who cares if nobody's going to know what we're doing we're just going to do it so that might be one of my favorite ones because it was it was directly related to uh to to that old movie which i had loved as a child that's awesome (laughs) that nobody i'm sure knows yeah but uh yeah because i don't because i think in reading the fan stuff i think one or two people picked up on it but the majority of the people never did. But there was a lot of, I'm trying, I can't remember. Oh, and the other, I really liked the, uh, the um, Sarah, oh, the, the, the girl uh, who pulls her face off. Uh, I can't remember her name, um, but she comes back a couple of times. But the, the, that, that villain that pulls her face off uh, in an episode, and I think I wrote that episode too. Um, I really liked that one, but I can't, I'm going to say her name was Sarah something or other, but I can't remember. Alice May, I think. Alice May. Thank you. Yes. Alice May. I really liked Alice May. I think probably because I thought she was genuinely creepy and scary. Uh, So that might be why I liked her. Definitely. Uh, And I wanted to talk about the songs that you had worked on for uh, both the In Fear of the Phantom and Art of Darkness. Yes. How did those come about? Well, the Art of Darkness, that one, the the Warhol uh, one, was because I think Tony and I were both big fans of the Velvet Underground and Nico. And I think the idea, and again, 
a lot of these ideas, that one in particular, I think was we came up with one while we were drunk and figuring out the show and thought that it would be super funny to have Scooby in a wig singing like Nico. We just thought that that was the most, that was just a batshit idea. And we were like, yes, let's do that. So that, that was, I think, how we came about uh, coming up with that. Just It was just a crazy idea that we thought was really funny. The other one... Let's see. I forget how we did. I mean, the hex. You're talking the hex girls song, right? There's the hex girls one, and then that ridiculous uh, fancy pants song. Oh well, fan. <laughs> I forgot about, forgot about fancy pants. Uh, fancy pants. Yeah, pants uh, without his pants. Um, again, that was just stupid. I think it was a, that was a that was a, a, a. We just were trying to come up with a what would be the stupidest song a boy band could come up with. And I think it was this um, something about taking their pants off. I, that's that's my memory of coming up with that one. It was just to make fun of boy bands. Um, I don't and I don't remember how we did the ones for the Hex Girls, but I know that the Fancy Pants one, I'm pretty sure was had to do with some Marky Mark song or that we saw that thought we thought was stupid, and decided that we were going to make fun of those. But I mean, all of those. Well, one of them I think was the first one, but many of those episodes, yeah, that we were. We were drinking pretty heavily uh, late at night coming up with those ideas and uh, that sort of seeps its way in there <laughs> bit by bit. And what was the process with uh, coming up with lyrics for the kind of Velvet Underground uh, type song? I listened to, um, it's all, the song is based on All Tomorrow's Parties by, uh, which Nico sang by the Velvet Underground. And I just would listen to the, I just listened to the song and the song's lyrics to me were just the original, the actual song's lyrics are just sort of, they're kind of ridiculous in a way. So I set out, I said, I'm going to write this song in the vein of this song, All Tomorrow's Parties, but just make it that nothing makes sense. It's just word salad. Just, it was, and that was, that was how we came up with, that was how I came up with the lyrics. I just writing, if just writing things that if you listen to the lyrics, they make no sense. Um, I think what is this? And uh, what is it? There's a if you can hear the something the elk or whatever. Anyways, the lyrics are just stupid, and they're stupid. And they make no sense, but they're based on all tomorrow's parties. And it was our sort of like sort of saying like, "Hey man, the Velvet Underground they don't make sense. There's nothing. Their songs don't make any fucking sense. And we're gonna make something that's totally ridiculous in that vein. That's a, that's my memory of of how that song came to be. Um, and how did you come to voice uh, various different characters on the show? Uh, let's see. I don't remember. Uh, I mean, I think Tony and I always wanted to put ourselves in it. So then we came up with those two, Ethan and Gary. And then what other? Oh, and then I did a farmer, too, on the show at some point. I don't know. It was a lot of times, you know, uh, if we needed to cast an actor and we didn't already have somebody to do the voice, I would just step in and do it. And, uh, and since I was SAG, I could do that. Um, and it's just fun, quite honestly. It's a, it, wasn't, it wasn't anything we sort of like set down. Like, we're going to play this role, we're going to play this role, except for Ethan and Gary, which were always intended to be uh, Tony and I. That's pretty, much, that's pretty much, you know, you go through, you know, a lot of these shows, when you do them, you have a certain number of, actors that you're allowed to cast and 
that's why you have actors like, you know, uh, a Maurice LaMarche or a Greg Griffin or somebody like that who can do multiple or Jeff Bennett who can do multiple voices uh, because usually when you hire them for one fee, you get three characters or something like that. So it, but if we had a particular episode where we didn't have uh, that, then one of us could always step in and do it. And so that, a lot of times that's what ended up happening is that's how we end up doing the voice. It'd be like, oh, we don't have anybody to do this voice. And rather than just cast another actor, we would just do it ourselves. And then we'd get paid. And it was great. And just more generally, why do you think that the darker tone of Mystery Incorporated worked so well? I don't know. Uh, I think, you know, what I think worked, what helped make the show really work was the fact that it had this overarching story. I, I you know, it, it uh, at the time, you know, in animation, when we made that show, nobody wanted to do that. That was another one of the things that we got a lot of pushback on was studios and networks at that time did not want to do uh, storylines that continued from episode to episode to episode. And that's partially why we put on chapter headings so that people would know if the network decided to show something out of order, they would know it. They would see, oh, I was just watching episode five, but now they're airing episode seven. What happened? Episode six. So um, because we could never trust Cartoon Network to actually air them in order. But but now that's now doing uh, serialized storytelling is very common because Netflix has made it much more common because people can binge watch these shows. So, uh, anyways, so that, that was, uh, that's really what I think people appeal to people. I do think people liked it cause it was a little scarier, but what I really think pe- appealed to people was the fact that there was this storyline that they could tune into every day and sort of track it and follow it. And, um, and like I said, we got a ton of pushback and they didn't really want us to do it. So that was why we compromised by having, uh, the continual storyline, but we also had um, standalone stories in each episode so that, you know, you could watch it out of order if you wanted to, if you just care, if you just wanted to pay attention to the, to the A story, which was the solving of that week's mystery. Great. You could do that. But if you chose to really dig deep and hang in there, you'd be rewarded with a story that went for 52 episodes that hopefully for the viewer had a very satisfying ending. And I, and I honestly think that's what people liked about the show more than anything. Cause it was the first version of Scooby that did that. And, you know, and we really spent a lot of time working that story out. And so that it all tracked and all made sense and all the pieces fit together in the end. So to me, that, to me, that's what people liked, I think even more than the darker tone. And why do you think that Scooby, which is, you know, just a cartoon about a mystery solving dog has held up for over 50 years now? Uh, well, I, there's two reasons for that, uh, that I, that I have been told this and that I've viewed, which is that, uh, one is I think kids inherently like scary things, whether they like it, whether they say they do or not, like even my daughter, my older daughter, who's afraid of scary things still likes to like watch scary things even though she knows they're going to scare her there's just something about it people are drawn to them because it makes them feel a particular way they it it hits it it creates an emotional response that you know kicks off their endorphins or whatever you want to say there's something about being scared that 
it, it appeals to the lizard brain or whatever in people. It's just there's something about it. So that's the first thing I think. And the second thing I think uh, of what they did in Scooby that that made it so popular is all the monsters turn out to be fake in the end. All of, you know, they're all unmasked and they're turns. So it's very safe. So a kid can watch an episode of Scooby-Doo and at the end of the episode, even though they're scared by the supernatural creature, they find out it's not real. None of it's real. All of these monsters are fake. They're just uh, people in masks. And I think that's very reassuring to a kid because it, you know, it, it, it tells them that there's nothing to be scared of when I go to sleep tonight because that monster wasn't real. So those two things, I think, are what has is, is created the enduring quality of Scooby-Doo. I know from, you know, hearing from fans uh, that, you know, one of the things that they really get angry about is when you break the rule of uh, the supernatural rule that all supernatural creatures <clears throat> are fake, which we did, you know, in the end of Mystery Incorporated. And we had a guy, our character designer on the show, got so angry with me when he read that storyline because he's like, you wrecked it. You've wrecked it. You wrecked it. You it was it was great. You know, you you were revealing it was just like the original where we unmasked the villains and it's not true. But now you have a supernatural villain. You wrecked the show. And he was dead serious. He was so angry. And we were like, I'm sorry. You know, we had to we knew where we were going and we wanted to up the stakes, and this is how we're doing it. But there were some people who got very, very offended by that. Very, you know, there was a I remember there was a lady who was um, helping uh, care for one of my oldest daughter when she was born when we were, and she was a massive Scooby-Doo fan. And when she found out that I was doing the new version, she got all excited and then she watched it and then she didn't stop talking about it. And I was like, "Uh Oh, so I said, did you, did you watch the show? She goes, yes, I watched it. I said, I'm guessing you didn't like it. And she goes, no, I didn't like it at all. And I said, well, what happened? Why didn't you like it? She goes, it just wasn't my Scooby-Doo. It wasn't my version of Scooby-Doo. My, you know, her version was the original version and, and that was all you could ever do. And that was the version that she knew for, from being a child and nothing was ever going to change. And so even changing any aspects of the show was offensive to her. So, you know, some people were like that, but, uh, but most people, most of the people went with it, but I do know that making, uh, none of the characters actual supernatural and unmasking them as being human in the end is one of the enduring qualities of that show that people love. And what do you think it is that drives people crazy when you break that formula? You know, I think it's just like anything else. It's like with superheroes too. It's uh, people, you know, when, when fans like a show, they feel very protective of it especially when it's a show they feel that they've discovered and hasn't gotten its due or whatnot. So I th it's like anything else. I think they get very, very protective of the show and they feel so for Scooby-Doo is a perfect example because <clears throat> it has real diehard fans and those diehard fans look at themselves as sort of the keepers of the flame. And that means to them, that means you aren't fucking with the canon of the show. You know, if it, this is what was established, this is the way it is. It's, and to me, I get it. I get it. And I have absolute respect for fans, but as a creator, it becomes too rigid for me. You know, I, you can't, 
it, it, to me, it's like I, I learned my lesson. I learned doing Batman where I really got, you know, a lot like everybody was like, this isn't Batman. Bruce Tim is, the you know, Bruce Tim's Batman is the only Batman, blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, you know what? I think I said this in an interview. I said, Bruce Tim's awesome. I know Bruce. He's a great guy. And I think what he did, uh, the, the Batman, the animated series is a fantastic series, but it was 20 years ago. And if you want to watch it, you can find it anywhere. We're not doing that show. We're doing a different, you know, our take on it. So, you know, why would I want to just rehash what Bruce did? I want to put my own stamp on it. And I wish that they could understand that a little bit more, but you know, they get the idea in their head that this is the show and this is the way it should be. And if you veer from it in any way, you've, I mean, I've literally gotten emails that said you have ruined my childhood, um, stuff like that. So, uh, you know, but I do think that the fans, they, they watch their version of whatever it is and that's the version. And to them, that's the only version and they feel very protective. And if you mess with that version in any way by doing something different, some people can get very, very vocal about it and very, very angry. Um, but hopefully they'll give it a chance and continue to watch it and realize that it's its own separate thing and that that's okay, that you can have variations of the show. Because if you just keep rehashing the same show over and over and over again, eventually people will stop watching it. You have to find, you have to continually find ways if you want to, keep you know profiting off of a particular uh ipo uh you have to find new ways of telling those stories or that it'll just die so that's my answer to that i think that covers all of the questions that i had written down for you here is there anything else that you wanted to talk about at all no, I think you got everything. I think we, I think we talked about everything. We talked about the beginning. We talked about Udo. We talked about Frank and the cast. And um, no, I don't think so. I think, uh, I think we covered. I think, as far as I can remember, we covered it all. I mean, like I said at the very top, I, it's a, been a very, you know, of more than any other show I've worked on. Scooby has been very satisfying because. Uh, you know, when we were making it, uh, Tony and I, you know, never felt that it was kind of getting the acknowledgement or people weren't finding it the way we wanted them to find it. And, you know, we just, it wasn't being received the way we had hoped it would be received. And at the time it was, it, you know, it, it bummed us out, but I, I, I will always remember us sitting and talking and, and just kind of going, you know what though, in five years, I think people will finally discover this show and, and really enjoy it. And it happened in less than five years. I think it was like three years, and it, but it happened when it went up on Netflix. And, um, and that has been very satisfying because, you know, we always thought we were making something good and we, we as a crew loved it and we're really proud of it and super surprised that Cartoon Network didn't feel the same way and kept taking it off and, and really messing it up and keeping it from being the success that we felt it should be. So when it showed back up on Netflix and then suddenly we're being bombarded by, you know, praise and people are putting it on top 10 lists. And, and I think one list even said it was the best iteration of Scooby-Doo that had ever been done. You know, it was like, Oh, okay. So we weren't crazy. You know, the people, we really did make something that people could enjoy. It, it just took them a while to get there. And so that, 
that has been very that has been very very satisfying because usually you do these things, you know, show ends, and and you move on to the next thing and you don't really hear about it. I've got tons of shows I've worked on that I've never heard about again, but Mystery Incorporated, it's like we did this show over ten years ago, so that's very satisfying that it's that it's somehow maintained. Uh, this thing that people could go. I mean, just yet uh, another friend of mine who's a voiceover actress who has a five-year-old son was just, just called me out of the blue and said, Hey, my son and I have started watching the show together. Oh my God. I love it. Blah, blah, blah. That's very, very nice. You know, it's very humbling, but it's just to know that you created something that, you know, outlasted it's it's original time in the sun and and that people continue to discover it and enjoy it and it's and it holds up so that that to me has been the most satisfying aspect of the show is that it's enduring legacy of you know entertaining people and you know people like you and and stuff who who continue to find to find it and and really you know get into it another guy i mean it, it, there is not a month that doesn't go by that somebody doesn't contact me through Facebook or through a friend and, and say, Hey, I just, just sort of stumbled on this show and man, it's really good. Can I ever talk to you about it? And I'm like, sure, of course. But that's very satisfying. You know, when, when something you work on, you know, touches people this many years later to the point where they, they actually reach out, which is a big deal. You know, a lot of people who watch, I've never reached out, I think to a creator and I have, I watched tons of television. So it's very humbling and it's and it's very rewarding when that kind of thing happens. And that's it. And just before we end, do you have any recent things that you've been working on that you want to promote? Well, yeah. Uh, let's see. I mean, um, obviously, if any, if, if you want to, the, well, the last two shows, Ah Hill King Julian and uh, Kung Fu Panda: uh, uh, Pause of Destiny were the last two shows that I did. Uh, both of both of one's on Amazon, one's on Netflix. They're great shows. The new show I'm doing right now won't be out for another year, but it's based on a book series called Big Nate, which is a very popular uh, book series in the same vein as Diary of a Wimpy Kid and everything. Um, totally different than Mystery Incorporated, but uh, very excited about it. Great crew, fantastic group of people. Um, so yeah, I hope you watch. It should be. It's for Nickelodeon. So I don't know if it's going to air on Nickelodeon or Netflix, but it'll be out in about a year. And I think you'll, I think people will really dig it. I think they're, they'll really like it. It's not scary like Mystery Incorporated, although we do have several horror episodes, but uh, because, uh, th- because I'm working on it, we have to. <laughs> uh, but uh, I think, I think people will like it. I think people will genuinely enjoy it. It's got very funny, uh, you know, it takes place in a middle school uh, a lot of music and some really, really fun and art, you know, stylistically art wise, we're pushing what we can do. We got, you know, our art director is a guy from Pixar, super talented guy named Dave Skelly. You know, we've got some really talented people working on it. So I think people, I think people will dig it and uh, I'm, I have high hopes for it. Awesome. Yes. And uh, do you have any social media channels or websites or places where people can follow what you're up to? No, <laughs> I should, but I don't. No, I don't. I don't have anything like that. I'm sorry. So that one, I should, but I don't. I apologize. No problem. 
Um, cool. Uh, thank you so much for uh, for taking the time and doing this. Of course. Thanks so much for chatting with me today, Mitch. You got it. Thank you very much for for reaching out and, and being a fan of the show and uh, and getting the word out there. We all really appreciate it. And that concludes today's episode. Another huge thank you to Mitch Watson for chatting with me and kicking off the Mystery Incorporated month. For more groovy content, be sure to check at UnmaskedSD on Twitter, at UnmaskedSDPodcast on Instagram, or at UnmaskedSDPodcast.com. You can also find the podcast on Facebook under the Unmasked History of Scooby-Doo podcast. If you like this episode and want to hear more, also make sure to check those social media channels or the website. Or you can listen to older episodes wherever you like to get your podcast fix. Thanks for listening, and stay tuned for the next episode in this month's Mystery Incorporated theme, which features writer Roger Eschbacher. Scooby-Dooby-Doo!